Welcome to another episode of the Yay, Nay or Mare podcast. I am your host, Colin Gaisley, coming to you from Bath in the southwest of England. And this episode kind of got away from me. I kept on finding myself in situations where I was adding films to this particular episode. It initially started out that last week's cinematic fair was pretty light with only two cinematic films scheduled for release, which I was actually interested in. The British disaster survival movie, I guess you'd call it, The End We Start From, and the heavily Oscar-baity film The Holdovers. So that was what was going to be in this episode. That's a pretty short episode. And also... This coming Tuesday, as I was thinking this, the Oscar nominations are going to be announced. And I really want to tick off all the major films that I want to before the Oscar nomination so I can give honest opinions on what gets nominated. And therefore, I felt the need to watch the Netflix film Maestro before the Oscar nominations announcement. So I did. I thought, okay, that's going to be a bit unusual nowadays where I'm mixing the cinematic and a Netflix review. But that was what it was going to be. And then I had a quick look ahead to what's coming next week. And I realised that, again, it was going to be a light week cinematically. And both of the major releases I would already have reviews for. Because one of them was All of Us Strangers, the latest film from Andrew Haig, which I saw as part of the London Film Festival at the end of last year, and already have a review in the bag. And the other major release is The Colour Purple, the musical version of the old Steven Spielberg film. So I was going to have a review of that as well, because... I'd already downloaded it illegally and was going to do a reaction video to both the original 1985 Steven Spielberg version of The Colour Purple and this 2023 musical remake. So I was going to have that review as well. So just before the Oscar nominations announcements, I watched all of these films. In fact, I watched both versions of The Colour Purple overnight into the early morning before the Oscar nominations were announced, but I did get them all finished and I did get them all recorded before the Oscar nominations. But now I'm recording this after the Oscar nominations have been announced, so the reviews are reviews where I didn't know what had actually got Oscar nominated, whereas at the end I will talk about what did get nominated and a little bit of you know, the snubs and surprises, but I did record a reaction video to the Oscar nominations, and that is currently on YouTube, if you're interested. So yeah, suddenly this turned into a very Oscar-baity and a very long episode covering two weeks' worth of cinematic releases. 
So in this episode, I will be reviewing the end we start from, the holdovers, all of us strangers, the colour purple, and Maestro. And it's probably going to be a very, very long show, and I've already talked quite a bit. So without any further ado, let's get on with today's reviews. Cinema Reviews The End We Start From is a mildly Oscar-baity British film which premiered at the Toronto International Film Festival at the end of 2023, which is usually a good launching pad for an Oscar campaign, although it seems that this particular film has been rather haphazardly released, and even though I have checked and it is on the official submission list or the official eligible list that the Academy publishes, I would be astonished if this film actually gets any votes at the Oscars this year. And I don't think it was on any BAFTA shortlists either, but anyway, it's that kind of film at least, and it has been cinematically released this week. It is the feature film directorial debut of Mahalia Bello, who has a background in television. She won a breakthrough BAFTA TV award for her TV movie Ellen. She then directed the TV miniseries Requiem and got a BAFTA nomination as Best Director at the Television BAFTAs for the miniseries The Long Song. And now she makes her cinematic feature-length debut with The End We Start From which is adapted from the novel by Megan Hunter by Alice Birch, who is rapidly becoming one of my favourite screenwriters. She has a very, very impressive CV. On television, Alice Birch has worked on the TV shows Succession, Normal People, Conversations with Friends, and the miniseries version of Dead Ringers that was out last year. And in feature films, she has written the script of Lady Macbeth, Mothering Sunday, the criminally underappreciated Netflix film The Wonder, and now The End We Start From. So yeah, some really, really good scripts in Alice Birch's background. And she adapts this novel about motherhood and crisis. This film is set in a world which is basically our own. It's the present day, but there are such severe storms which have taken place that many low-lying areas, including the entirety of Greater London, are now completely flooded. So Jodie Comer initially heavily pregnant and then with a very newborn baby, has to survive in this post-apocalyptic world where basically everything is drowned and the worst in humanity is coming out to protect yourself and survive. Initially, she tries to find safety with her partner. It's never outright stated, but I think they're married. I think I saw wedding rings. but. Her partner is Joel Fry, and initially they set out together in order to find safety and find temporary shelter 
with Joel Fry's parents, played by Mark Strong and Nina Sasania. And eventually Jodie Comer travels the country with another very new mother, Catherine Waterston, in search of a haven, a commune run by Gina McKee. And along the way, there's one scene where they interact with Benedict Cumberbatch, which is kind of cool. So Jodie Comer, with a very, very newborn baby in tow, tramps up and down the country, mostly just walking up and down the country, trying to find a safe place, trying to find an environment where she and her baby can be safe and survive in this world which is rapidly losing its social cohesion. So, yeah, I I think... I mean, I've not read the original novel by Megan Hunter, but I think what Megan Hunter is getting at is using this environmental catastrophe to tell a post-apocalyptic world. I mean, it also feels very, very much like a COVID metaphor with people you know, isolating and trying to survive, even though the novel was published in 2017. But I think the film version, I think, is emphasising the COVID metaphors as well. And it's disturbingly plausible because these storms are becoming increasingly common. I mean, only a couple of weeks ago, as I'm recording this, the valley that I live on the side of, I mean, I live about, I don't know, 500 metres from the River Avon, on the side of a valley, and a couple of weeks ago, I have never seen as big a flood as there was. From the bottom of my garden to right across the other side of the valley was just a lake of water. It's never been that bad in the 40-odd years I've been living in this house. And only yesterday, we here in Bath got the tail end of another storm. I mean, these once-in-a-century storms are happening every couple of weeks. But it's perfectly fine as long as the energy company shareholders get their dividends, isn't it? So yes, this is disturbingly plausible, where severe storms have completely flooded London, and therefore social cohesion has completely broken down. In a lot of ways, this film reminded me strongly of The Road. I mean, it's not nearly as bleak as The Road, but it's certainly got elements in common. This is a scenario where Jodie Comer and her very new baby, and eventually hooking up with Catherine Waterston and her new baby, are travelling up and down the roads, and, and every person you meet is potentially a threat. Every person you meet is potentially just going to attack you or kill you just because that's what life is now. And, yeah, I mean, the breakdown of social cohesion, the breakdown of morality is so strong in this film that it does have that bleak post-apocalyptic outlook. But it is a scenario with something of an endpoint. I mean, uh, judging by how old the baby is by the end of this film, I'm thinking that this film takes place over the course of about 18 months, maybe two years. 
and eventually you know, things start to come back to normal. I mean, whatever normal is anymore. I mean, so this is a disaster, but a disaster with a, a somewhat finite period. But by the time we come back, what has changed? What have we lost? I mean, I think the title of this book and film is apt. This is the end we start from. What was has gone. What is is still to come. Which, again, I think this is a very, very apt COVID metaphor, even though the novel's from 2017. But, I mean, this is a film which really, really sets up its scenario very, very well. Because, I mean, the opening sequence of this film is a heavily pregnant Jodie Comer in her little London flat waiting for her husband to come home and she pokes her belly on one side and there's a little kick on the other side of her belly and then she goes into labour just as water starts coming in under her front door so as she's in labour and trying to get in touch with the emergency services which are completely overloaded and trying to prevent the flood water coming, eventually she's in full labour as the front windows get completely caved in by a torrent of water. I mean, it's really, really dramatic, and the angles and the shots that Mahalia Bello chooses to use is really strong. I mean, this is a sequence which a lot of it is shot through doorways, a lot of it is shot from higher than you would anticipate. It's got a little bit of a grainier quality to it. I mean, it was almost certainly shot in digital, but I think it's been given some sort of 16mm filters at certain points. But yeah, it's really, really strong having those unusual angles uh, as we see this woman giving birth, but also having to be aware we're in the middle of a disaster. And eventually, with a newborn in tow, and initially with Joel Fry, she has to go on this journey trying to find safety. And you know, the towns and villages on higher ground have basically shut their borders. I mean, there's not enough room for everybody, and they nearly don't make it to Joel Fry's parents in Nina Sassania and Mark Strong, because the police stop them, saying, yes, well, everybody's trying to get to higher ground, aren't they? Yeah, but my parents are in there. I, I grew up here. Yeah, but you don't live here now, do you? And it's that kind of attitude. You know, the concern is solely for the individual. The concern is solely for the self. There's, right from the start, no sense of community at all. It's just survival. It's just existence. And I think one of the ideas is how quickly the social cohesion completely breaks down. And it's really, really well portrayed. I mean, this is a story of survival. It's a a kind of a post-apocalyptic story as well. It's very, very interesting that none of these characters have names. The only person we ever hear called by name is the baby. And the baby's called Zab, which is an unusual name. And I, I think possibly having a baby whose name starts with a Zad. I mean, this is, you know, the last baby, maybe. I know, maybe that was the intention, but that's the only person on screen, the only individual on screen who actually gets a name. We never have anybody else's name. And that, I think, is a really interesting choice. 
making it as universal as possible. I mean, yeah, I mean, Jodie Comer is excellent in this film. She really, really is. Catherine Waterston is also good, as is Joel Fry. Gina McKee and Benedict Cumberbatch in very, very small roles are also decent. I mean, this is a film with a very specific tone, a very specific goal in mind. And I think it achieves it. So, yeah, this is an intriguing disaster survival movie with a little bit of an environmental message. And in the present day here in 2024, a little bit of a COVID message as well. But yeah, this is a fascinating little film and I did like it. So for me, the end we start from, which should still be in cinemas by the time this comes out, is an intriguing, well-acted meh. The Holdovers is the latest film from Alexander Payne, who has a limited but rather award-baity CV as a director. He first came to international prominence with his film Election, which was his second feature-length film. His first one didn't come out in Britain until a decade later, but Election was very successful and got Alexander Payne and his co-writer an Oscar nomination for Best Adapted Screenplay. His follow-up to Election was About Schmidt, which got both Jack Nicholson and Kathy Bates Oscar nominations. And for Alexander Payne's next two films, which he actually took quite a while to complete, both Sideways in 2004 and The Descendants in 2011, won Oscars for Alexander Payne and co-writers for Best Adapted Screenplay and was nominated for Best Director and Best Picture. Sideways also picked up nominations for Thomas Hayden Church and Virginia Madsen, not Paul Giamatti, which... I thought oh, I could have sworn that Paul Giamatti got Oscar nominated for that, but anyway. And The Descendants also got George Clooney an Oscar nomination. And then the follow-up to The Descendants got a lot of Oscar nominations, but no wins. Best Picture, Best Director for Alexander Payne. Uh, he didn't write that one, but he did get Best Original Screenplay for Bob Nelson. And both Gene Squibb and Bruce Dern also got Oscar nominated for Nebraska. He then did Downsizing, which wasn't enormously successful. It was just a very strange film. And even though Hong Chow got a lot of Best Supporting Actress nominations for that, she didn't get an Oscar nomination for that. And now here we are with The Holdovers, which has already won two Golden Globes. Paul Giamatti won for Best Actor in a Comedy or Musical and Divine Joy Randolph one for Best Supporting Actress, and both of those are likely, if not nailed on certainties, to get Oscar nominations for their roles in this film, The Holdovers, and it's probably going to show up in Best Picture, probably going to show up in Best Original Screenplay. Uh, this is another one that Alexander Payne had no hand in writing. This was written by David Hemmingson who has a background in television, 
he has created the TV shows Kitchen Confidential and Whiskey Cavalier and has been involved in writing and producing TV shows like Family Guy, American Dad, How I Met Your Mother, and Don't Trust to Be in Apartment 23. So, you know, a long career in TV, edging towards the comedy end of things, but this is his first produced feature film script, and he's probably going to get an Oscar for it. So, good on David Hemmingson. So yes, The Holdovers stars Paul Giamatti again, the first time that he has worked with Alexander Payne since Sideways, as a cantankerous classics teacher at an exclusive New England boarding school in 1969. Paul Giamatti is an isolated person he's not popular with his students he's not popular with the other teachers he has a rigid idea of right and wrong he has a rigid idea of propriety which doesn't make him popular particularly when a senator's son fails his class and he refuses to give a gentleman c and mostly as a punishment for this decency and honesty It is Paul Giamatti's onerous task to stay over on the school's campus over the Christmas break with all the other unfortunate boys who have nowhere else to go. Now, Paul Giamatti was going to stay on campus anyway, but now he's in charge of these initially five boys. But... Before too long, there's only one left. A very bitter, very angry student, Dominic Sessa, making his acting debut, and yet he got a Golden Globe nomination for Best Supporting Actor. I don't think he's going to get an Oscar nomination, but he's certainly in the running. But anyway, Dominic Sessa is eventually the only student that Paul Giamatti is in charge of. So it's these two men who don't, like each other, don't particularly want to spend any time together, and the only other person on campus, or consistently on campus, is the manager of the cafeteria, played by Davine Joy Randolph, who doesn't take any crap from anybody, but has a a reasonably congenial relationship with Paul Giamatti, but She is grieving and isn't particularly dealing with it because her son, who, because she was a staff member, got a scholarship to this exclusive New England boarding school, but her son couldn't afford to go to the colleges he got accepted to, so instead went into the army and went to Vietnam and died. So, Dave Joy Randolph is grieving the death of her son and is barely putting up with the bullshit that Paul Giamatti and Dominic Sessa are doing. And these three people have to learn to live together over the two or so weeks in this very, very snowbound, very, very exclusive boarding school in New England in 1969. Actually, it might be 1970. 
Yeah, I think it's actually 1970 because it's New Year's 1971 at the end of the film. So, well, either way, it's 1969 or 1970. It's a period film. When I started seeing trailers for The Holdovers, I mean, because it, it, it was one of those films that very, very quickly it became, you know, an Oscar contender, quote unquote. And, you know, it's clear to see why Alexander Payne has got a background getting Oscar nominations and BAFTA nominations, all that kind of stuff. Paul Giamatti is one of those actors who is very, very respected, but has not won an Oscar yet, although he has won a Golden Globe for Barney's version. Which, until I just looked at it now, I've completely forgotten about. But Barney's version was actually pretty damn good. So he won a Golden Globe for that. He won a Golden Globe for the TV miniseries John Adams, and he was very good in that. He got Golden Globe nominations for <laughs> Sideways. And he also got Golden Globe and Oscar nominations for Cinderella Man, and I've completely forgotten he was in that. Actually, I'm not entirely sure I've ever seen Cinderella Man and the fact uh, I'm not sure perhaps tells you something of the quality of Cinderella Man but you know, Paul Giamatti is very respected but he hasn't won an Oscar and maybe he will this time I mean he's going to have to fight off people like Killian Murphy and Bradley Cooper maybe Leonardo DiCaprio that he seems to have been falling out of the race but he has a legitimate chance of actually winning an Oscar this year. So, yeah, Paul Giamatti it is one of those actors who people want to root for. And I think, to some degree, I think Alexander Payne is one of those directors who people want to root for. So the holdovers very quickly became, you know, a quote-unquote Oscar contender. And I did want to see it. So uh, I checked it out and... Seeing those trailers made it look like this was an irascible, cantankerous man who who doesn't want to interact with the world. He doesn't want to interact with his pupils. He's just off in his own world. But that's not really the character we get. Uh, I think what Paul Giamatti is portraying through the script of David Hemmingson and the directing of Alexander Payne is somebody who has a very specific idea of what he should be doing. One of his repeated mantras is Barton men do not lie because he himself went to this exclusive boarding school Barton Eventually, it is revealed on a scholarship, which I think is significant. Uh, and he it has bought into this idea of uh, we are at Barton, we are at this pinnacle of educational excellence. The things we teach you here will bring you out into the wider world, into you know, privilege and whatever. But the things you learn here will set you up for life. And that means something, that matters. So I am not going to pass you just because your daddy's rich. I am not going to give you a gentleman's seat so you can get into Cornell or Princeton or whatever. You do the work and I will give you the correct marks. And he has this idea, and even when the headmaster of this school, who has leapfrogged him, I mean, 
Paul Giamatti taught the headmaster when he was a boy at Barton, and now he's the headmaster. You know, he, he stayed in this little cocoon, uh, and he has this idea of right and wrong. And he is okay being alone, but he does have cordial relationships with Dave, I enjoy Randolph. I mean, it, when they're alone in this boarding school together, it's acceptable. It's okay with Dave, I enjoy Randolph that Paul Giamatti just wanders into her lodgings and sits down and watches television with her. And they have you know pleasant conversations with each other in the cafeteria. He doesn't treat her like the staff. And everybody's okay with that. And and there's you know, a mild flirtation, possibly, between Paul Giamatti and a, a female member of staff, Carrie Preston, who I think is the headmaster's secretary. I don't think she's a teacher, but she's on staff at, at this boarding school. And you know, there's one point where Carrie Preston brings cookies to Paul Giamatti. And the implication is that these Christmas cookies are for Paul Giamatti. I mean, she says, I-, I made cookies, I made them for the staff, not all the staff, and yet Paul Giamatti is getting some. So there's you know, a little bit of casual flirtation, potentially, between Paul Giamatti and Carrie Preston, and he's open to that. So it's not the typical confirmed bachelor, irascible, cantankerous academic that I, I was led to believe that was. I mean, that is a trope which is very, very popular throughout all forms of media. And that's not really what we get here in The Holdovers, because he is open to life. He is open to connection. He just doesn't want to. I mean, if you are not going to live by his rules of honesty and propriety, then what's the point? The idea that we are privileged to be here and we shouldn't take it for granted. I mean, the fact he was a scholarship boy and the fact that he got beaten down eventually through life and through people who are in that privileged position and were given gentlemen C's in order to get them into the Ivy League. He's hardened on these rules. I am not going to to this uh, and he knows what he's doing he knows the consequences and he's okay with it uh, and he has learnt to be isolated because to some degree he has isolated himself and that's a really really fascinating character and Paul Giamatti does play it really really well and then we have the other characters in this film we have Dominic Sessa who is a, a boy who feels abandoned and has every right to feel abandoned and doesn't have the emotional maturity to really deal with it so he lashes out he rages he's actually quite intelligent but he's been kicked out of so many schools because of his personal problems i mean there's a brilliant scene one of the opening scenes is paul giamatti in his classics class and he's handing out these papers you know it's f D minus, F plus, C minus. And then the only person who got a, a good grade was Dominic Sessa, and he only got a B plus. 
So he's intelligent, and Pojamati knows he's intelligent, or at least compared to his peers. But his rage and his abandonment issues, because his mother has basically abandoned him. His mother has recently remarried a rich guy, and at the beginning of the film, Dominic Sessa thinks that they're going to St. Kitts for the Christmas break. And then at the very, very last minute, his mother phones up and says, actually, I never got a honeymoon, so do you mind just staying behind in this blizzard-covered New England boarding school while me and my new husband go off to St. Kitts? So he's naturally very, very angry at this and is lashing out at every opportunity. And the pain and the confusion of this... and. There's a little bit of that dynamic that you sometimes get. I kind of call it the Collier effect because that's the first time I remember seeing it. So certainly with the popularized it, you know, the old cantankerous man having his heart warmed and having his heart melted by a younger person that he has to take care of. I mean, it's not exactly that dynamic because you know Dominic Sess is seventeen and an angry misanthrope, but. There's a little bit of that going on, and once Paul Giamatti understands where Dominic Sessa is coming from, and equally when Dominic Sessa understands where Paul Giamatti is coming from, there's a rapprochement, there, there's a connection there. Seeing this relationship gradually develop between the two is very, very cool. And then when you add in Dave Joy Randolph, who is playing this grieving mother who... And everybody knows that her son has died. I mean, one of the early scenes is a memorial service to her son because he was a student and has just died in Vietnam. And Alexander Payne does a really, really interesting thing in that sequence because we're in the chapel and he has a close-up of all the people who are memorialised there, you know, like died in the Great War, died in the Second World War gone but not forgotten, that kind of thing. So there's memorials all over the place. But the one person who went to Vietnam was the black kid. And, I mean, it's never said out loud, but the heavy, heavy implication is there all the way through. I mean, Paul Giamatti knows exactly what's going on, and maybe that's why he and Dave and Joe Randolph have a, a decent relationship, is because Paul Giamatti didn't come from this privilege. And Dave and Joe Randolph certainly doesn't come from this privilege. So there's a, a little bit of connection there as well. But Dave and Joe Randolph is clearly grieving. I mean, it comes out in waves. It comes out, you know, she is maybe drinking too much. And Paul Giamatti is certainly drinking too much. I mean, I think he's got a mild to moderate drinking problem. I wouldn't go so far as to call him a functioning alcoholic, but I wouldn't fight you too hard if you said he was. And David Joan Randolph is just doing her work, keeping her head down, avoiding going to see her little sister in nearby Boston, who has invited her over for the holidays. And eventually we realise that's because her little sister's pregnant. Uh, and that brings up a whole set of questions. So yeah, I mean, David Joan Randolph here is dealing with her emotions in her own way and perhaps not dealing with them. I mean, there's one scene, which is probably the Oscar scene, where she you know, completely breaks down and says how unfair it all is. Significantly, I think that happens while she's drunk. But honestly, 
I didn't see this performance and think, oh, that's going to win an Oscar. I think there's other performances which I prefer over Dave I and Joe Randolph, and they're probably not going to get nominated. Or, well, I think looking at my list of, you know, the gold derby lists of Oscar potential, I think my personal favourites for the Best Supporting Actress nod would be Sandra Hüller for The Zone of Interest and Penelope Cruz for Ferrari. And I'd be very, very surprised if both of those actresses made it into the final list at the Oscars. I think Penelope Cruz has got a decent shout, but yeah, I don't think I would give Dave and Joe Randolph the Oscar, judging from what I've seen already, and I think I've seen basically everything. So yeah, we'll have to see, but it's certainly good. I think it's certainly nomination worthy. I, I wouldn't say it's a, a nailed on winner for me, but anyway, Dave and Joe Randolph is very, very good, as is Paul Giamatti and Dominic Sessa. And I like how old-fashioned this film kind of is. I mean, not only because of its period setting, but Alexander Payne went out of his way to make everything look a little vintage. I mean, the credits for this film have got old-school logos, like the very, very old Universal logo, focus features doing sort of like a 1970s thing, and they didn't even exist in the 1970s. But there's also a BBFC card which gives it a double a rating which was long before i was even born but that's that's what we have they they took the time to put an old-fashioned old-school british board of film classification stamp on this film and i also think that paul giamatti's attitudes are quite old-fashioned i mean he does have this sort of black and white idea of right and wrong i mean the idea is that you teach these boys what to do how to live and they will become better people but that's not how it works because of all the privilege because of all the entitlement and yet he is still fighting this uphill battle to say be honest be true do the work understand the work and you will be better for it and i think there's a very idealistic strict paul giamatti which is it's really interesting and adds to the whole layers and the whole complexity of the character i mean yes i think paul giamatti is certainly deserving of an oscar nomination for this i think my personal choice right now might actually be Bradley Cooper, who I saw in Maestro and we're going to be talking about later. But yeah, I think Bradley Cooper, Killian Murphy and Paul Giamatti are going to be an interesting trio. And Leonardo DiCaprio. I mean, the more I think about it, the more I'm, I'm not all that impressed with Leonardo DiCaprio's performance in Killers of the Flower Moon. But anyway, lots and lots of Oscar potential. And I really did like this film. I mean, it is a film about relationships in common with other Alexander Payne projects like Sideways, it's very much a character study of somebody and their foibles and their insecurities. And Paul Giamatti knows how to do that perfectly. And I think he does. So yes, I really, really like The Holdovers. It should still be in cinemas by the time this comes out. And for me, it is a yay. 
All of Us Strangers is the latest film written and directed by Andrew Haig, who really is one of my absolute favourite film directors. I didn't see his first film called Greek Pete, which was made in 2009 for £5,000 and is entirely populated by real-life London rent boys. But since then, I have absolutely adored all of Andrew Haig's films. Weekend in 2011, 45 Years in 2015, and Lean on Pete in 2017 are all absolutely fantastic. I love all of those films. I'm, to be honest, less familiar with Andrew Haig's television work. He has written and created the TV show Looking, and he wrote and created the TV show The North Water, and along the way he also directed a couple of episodes of the Netflix show The OA. But now he is back with this new feature film, All of Us Strangers, which is based on, somewhat loosely based on, a novel by Japanese author Taichi Yamada, who was, a, and I believe still is, I mean, he's quite old now, but I believe he's still working, but Taichi Yamada is a very, very well-respected television screenwriter who has, along the way, written three novels, one of which is this film, Strangers, or to give it its original title, Summer of the Strange People, or Summer of the Strangers, or Summer of the Zombies, if you want to get a bit in your face about it. I mean, it seems to be one of those things that doesn't have a, a truly accurate translation into English, but that was written in 1987, and in 2003, an English translation of it was published to great acclaim, under the title Strangers. But by that point, there had already been a Japanese film version of this novel by Taichi Yamada, which in the English-speaking world was released under the rather unwieldy title of The Discarnates in 1988, so only a year after the novel came out, and that film was directed by Nobuhiko Obayashi, the weirdo who directed the surrealist freakout film Haosu. But yes, he also, about 10 years later, directed this film, The Discarnates. And I got curious, so I've actually just finished watching The Discarnates as I'm sitting down to record this. And I will be getting back to the film, The Discarnates, in a little bit. But before then... I should tell you what the plot of this film is. It starts with Andrew Scott, who is a 40-something screenwriter who lives in an almost entirely abandoned apartment block. It's only just been opened, nobody's really moved in yet, he's essentially living there alone, but there's one other person in this tower block living there who turns out to be Paul Mascal, who one evening, rather drunkenly, goes up the several flights between the two flats, 
knocks on Andrew Scott's door with a bottle of Japanese whiskey and says, do you fancy hanging out? And because Paul Mescal is quite drunk, Andrew Scott politely declines. But over the course of the next few days and weeks, Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott keep on meeting up with each other. And gradually, a a friendship and even a romance develops between these two men, which is something to do because Andrew Scott, in common with many writers in media, is suffering from writer's block. So he is hanging out with this slightly younger man, Paul Mescal, and he is also searching for inspiration by travelling back to his childhood home in the suburbs of London, out towards Sussex. He is constantly taking the commuter train to East Grinstead and stopping off at the village in the suburban sprawl between Sussex and London and goes and visits his childhood home and starts reminiscing about his parents who died when he was 12 years old and trying to remember them, trying to reminisce about them, trying to reconnect with them, and searching for inspiration for his latest screenplay, he goes to his childhood home. Where his father, played by Jamie Bell, invites him in. And when Andrew Scott goes into this house, his mother, Claire Foy, is also there. They know that this 40-year-old man is their son, despite the fact he's probably actually older than they were when they died. They know they're ghosts. They know they're the, that this is their son. They don't exactly remember how they died, but they don't seem particularly bothered by this weird situation. And Andrew Scott starts spending time with the phantoms of his dead parents. And he starts spending more and more time with them and starts understanding them better. And doing all the things that he never got a chance to do, never got a chance to say. And that includes coming out to his parents, which doesn't exactly go the way he wants. But again, I'll be getting back to that in a minute. So this strange situation of this 40-ish queer screenwriter meeting the ghosts of his parents and getting inspiration that way all the while forming a bond, forming a relationship with the handsome man he is sharing this abandoned tower block with. But how is this supernatural situation going to sort itself out? So I think I actually want to start with the 1988 Japanese version of this story, which in the English-speaking world was released as The Discarnates, because it's interesting seeing the source material and seeing what Andrew Haig has done with it. Now, to the best of my knowledge, after a couple of hours on the internet, a couple of hours on Wikipedia, It looks like this film version, The Discarnates, is pretty close to Taichi Yamada's original novel. 
And what that means is that this film version, which I'm assuming is the same as the novel, is very, very much a ghost story. It is 100% a ghost narrative. It's designed to be creepy. It's designed to be spooky. The ghost elements of this narrative are what is most brought to bear including the fact that the ending of the film The Discarnates has a very, very ostentatious and flamboyant extra supernatural element which gets put on top of the ghost story we've been living through. So that seems to be what the original narrative is. But what Andrew Haig has done with it and what he's adapted it into is kind of a meditation on queerness, which is fascinating. I mean, this is kind of like a stock take of attitudes and acceptance now in 2022, and when his parents died, and when you know his parents are, are still have the mentality of when they died in roughly 1987. And it's kind of like a stock take of attitudes then and attitudes now and how they've changed and how comfortable a 40-ish-year-old queer man like Andrew Scott is with his own queerness, with his own place in society. I mean, when Andrew Scott is having a conversation with essentially the ghost of his dead mother, played by Claire Foy, she is going, you know, well, tell me all about yourself. I mean, do you have a girlfriend? I mean, what, what's going on? And Andrew Scott, you know, steals himself and says, no, actually, I don't have a girlfriend. I'm into boys. Uh, and Claire Foy does not respond particularly well to this because she is essentially still living in 1987. And the uncomfortable interactions that that presents the idea that oh well this isn't what i wanted for my son i mean what will the neighbors think i mean and oh and, and you're going to die from that horrible disease aren't you you've i've seen the advert with the tombstone and that fucking advert did so much damage to the lgbt community i mean if, if actually i'm <laughs> i'm pushing 45 so there might be people who do not know what advert i'm talking about but there was an anti-aids advert a campaign which was centered around a tombstone and the voiceover was done by the queer actor john hurt but this was you know a public information film about aids you know be careful practice safe sex all that kind of stuff but the fact it was a tombstone on the televisions, a tombstone in these print adverts. It really, really demonised the queer community. And yeah, it caused so much damage. I mean, I think it was well-intentioned, but let's not forget this was Thatcher's government that put this out. But yeah, that advert did do a lot of damage. So yeah, actually, I'm going to try and find it. And if I can find a clip of this i'm sure it's on youtube i'll put the audio from it or some of the audio from it in here there is now a danger that has become a threat to us all 
It is a deadly disease and there is no known cure. The virus can be passed during sexual intercourse with an infected person. Anyone can get it, man or woman. So far it's been confined to small groups, but it's spreading. So protect yourself and read this leaflet when it arrives. If you ignore AIDS, it could be the death of you. So don't die of ignorance. So yeah, that was the state of queer acceptance in about 1987. And yeah, I mean, that particular sequence, but the general vibe of this whole film, it did feel to me very much like a stock take. It felt like Andrew Scott is of the generation of queer men who had to live through that, who had to protect themselves in many different ways from society. And the fact that the man that Andrew Scott is spending time with and ends up sleeping with in a reasonably graphic couple of sequences, I mean, there's some you know, hot man-on-man action in this film. But the fact that Paul Mescal is 20 years younger than Andrew Scott, he didn't really live through that. He didn't live through the the demonization of the queer community from that AIDS campaign. So he's got an entirely different generation's attitude. I mean, you've got the 1987 attitude presented by Claire Foy, the older gay man in Andrew Scott and the younger gay man who didn't really live like that and and has basically been reasonably comfortable being reasonably out for his entire life. I mean, yes, he, he doesn't talk about his family, Paul Mescal, but he's reasonably out and he's reasonably comfortable and he hadn't really had to deal with all that demonization. And, yeah, it's it's fascinating seeing the progression, and I think that is what Andrew Haig has deliberately done, and done in a brilliant, brilliant way. I mean, taking this ghost story, essentially, and twisting it into a meditation about the progress of queer comfort and queer rights. And done it in a really, really way. I mean, I, I have to say, I absolutely fucking loved this film. It is so good. I mean, yes, it's got the uncanny stuff with the dead parents who know they're dead. You, you've got some other mysterious stuff going on. I mean, you know, the creepy factor that it's this giant tower block and there's two people actually living there. They don't even have security guards in this tower block because it's only just been opened so yeah it's it's disquieting the whole thing i mean and it genuinely is one of those films where it's got such an eerie atmosphere to it that throughout large chunks of this film it's a genuine question how many people on screen are alive Is this one of those films that takes place entirely within the mind of an either dying or recently dead Andrew Scott? I mean, that is a genuine possibility with the way the film plays out. And, yeah, there's, there's extra supernatural elements to this other than the spirits, the phantoms of Claire Foy and Jamie Bell. Uh, And I think I, I might, 
possibly have already said too much just saying that. But yeah, this is an eerie, it's an uncanny film. But it's really, really done well, particularly because it has that narrative of stock taking queer life in 1987 and 2022, 2023. But also, the way the world is built, I mean, one thing I have to praise in this film, and I don't necessarily do this very often, is I have to praise the music direction of this film. There are needle drops in this film which are outstanding. There are basically two different strands of music which is being used in this film. One thing that Andrew Scott weirdly does repeatedly is watch very, very old episodes of Top of the Pops including Christmas episodes of Top of the Pops, which at one point Paul Mescal dismissively says, oh yes, that's Top of the Pops from before I was born, which, apart from anything else, made me feel quite old as I was sitting in the cinema watching this. And through watching these old Christmas episodes of Top of the Pops, we have tracks like The Power of Love by Frankie Goes to Hollywood, and... You Were Always On My Mind by the Pet Shop Boys. Not insignificantly, I think, to out queer bands. And when Andrew Scott goes back to his childhood bedroom, he picks up a couple of LPs, which are Welcome to the Pleasure Dome by Frankie Goes to Hollywood, and I believe it's The Circus by Erasure. I mean, it's definitely an Erasure record. I think it was The Circus. But yeah, two openly queer bands. So there's that. But another thing that is built into this is we have music from the mid 80s and later, but it's never the most obvious choice. There is a Fine Young Cannibals song on the soundtrack to All of Us Strangers, but it is not She Drives Me Crazy or Good Thing. I mean, the two most obvious Fine Young Cannibals tracks. It's Johnny Come Home. And there is a House Martins track on the soundtrack to All of Us Strangers, but it is not one of the most obvious House Martins track, either Caravan of Love or Happy Hour. It's Build. And both of those songs, Build and Johnny Come Home, have somewhat thematic connections. I mean, Johnny Come Home is about a runaway, possibly a queer runaway, living on the streets of London. And Build is about the concept of home. And both of those things potentially could have meaning for the character of Andrew Scott. But the best needle drop in this song, and possibly the best needle drop I've seen in any film for absolutely ages, doesn't really fit into either of those categories, either Christmas Topper Pops or non-obvious tracks from mid-80s bands. And yes, it is a non-obvious track from this band, but it was from an album that was released in 1997. There's a sequence where Andrew Scott and Paul Mascal 
go to a club, presumably a gay club. And it's a long montage, which also then expands into you know, them spending time together, you know, sharing a bathroom, you know, hanging out together, watching television. You know, a cute couple montage, which starts in this nightclub. And the music that is playing in this nightclub is Death of a Party by Blur. And when I heard that music being played in that sequence, I made an audible noise, which I think irritated the people I was sitting around. I mean, this was a packed screening over in the watershed for the touring programme of the London Film Festival. This was so much busier than all the other screenings I've so far been to. I mean, this was my fourth screening at this year's touring programme at the London Film Festival, and it was a sellout. I mean, it was absolutely packed. But, yeah, I mean, hearing Death of a Party on the soundtrack, I was so, so pleased. I mean, I am such a big fan of Blur. It was a very, very important band to me when I was growing up. And Death of a Party is my absolute favourite album track by Blur. And since it was released on their eponymous, what was it, fourth album, I think it was, maybe even fifth, Leisure, Modern Life is Rubbish, Park Life, Great Escape. No, it was their fifth. Blur was their fifth studio album. And it's my absolute favourite album track. And it was released in 1997. So there's a chance that some of my audience might not have ever heard Death of a Party. And I love it. So again, I'm going to play a little bit of it now. And really, that is my absolute favourite Blur album track. It might even be my favourite Blur track full stop. And the fact it was used for this very, very important pivotal montage in the middle of All of Us Strangers really, really made my geek brain happy. So yeah, the music curation in this film is outstanding. I think that the concept of stock taking queer attitudes through the generations is really good. It's a really good idea and it's also handled really well. The acting all round is outstanding. I mean, Andrew Scott is so brilliant in this film. I also think Claire Foy is excellent in this film as well. I think it's outstanding. I mean, I, I was maybe a tiny tiny bit let down by the end of this film i don't think it quite landed it i think it was a little bit too ambiguous for its own good now i mean the japanese 1988 film the discarnates like i said has a very very ostentatious very very supernatural ending all of us strangers doesn't and it honestly doesn't have a perfectly understandable ending. I'm honestly 
a little bit confused by the final sequences of this film, but with a, a tiny misstep in the final moments, regardless of that, I think All of Us Strangers is absolutely outstanding. I mean, at the 2022 touring programme of the London Film Festival, I saw The Whale, which I think is going to be one of my absolute favourite films of 2023. And at the 2021 touring programme of the London Film Festival over in the watershed, I saw the animated documentary Flea, which ended up being my absolute favourite film of 2022. And I think all of us strangers are going to keep that streak going because... I loved it. I really, really loved this film. I think it's outstanding. Once again, Andrew Haig proves himself to be a phenomenal director. And yeah, it's it's got so much good stuff in it. Great acting, great ideas, great concept, brilliantly executed. It's just outstanding. And for me, all of us strangers which at time of recording is going to be out in a couple of months at at the middle of January 2024. I believe it's scheduled to come out. So that's presumably where I'm going to be playing this uh, alongside the London Film Festival special. But yeah, this is outstanding. And for me, it is a definite yay. Finally, for this Oscar Beatty type cinematic section, we have The Colour Purple, the musical version of the 1985 Steven Spielberg film and the 1982 Pulitzer Prize winning novel by Alice Walker. They really will turn anything into a musical. I mean, you hear the plotline of The Colour Purple, you think, how are you going to turn that into a musical? But they did. And they've now made a film version of that Broadway musical. And this film is directed by Bits Buzzle. Which is really, really cool. And for the next few minutes, I'm going to be that guy. Because I knew Bits Buzzle before he was famous. He is a Ghanaian director and musician, who started out mostly in the music industry, both in his native Ghana and in the US, but then transitioned into making feature films with The Burial of Kojo in 2018. Made in his native Ghana, it was seen and championed by Ava DuVernay, who got the distribution rights and distributed it in a limited basis cinematically in the United States, but crucially also got it onto Netflix. And that's where I saw The Burial of Kojo. And while the film itself, the story itself, is clearly very, very cheap, I mean, he can't have been using much more than consumer-grade equipment. So the... Production values were very, very low, but the visuals of The Burial of Kojo were so goddamn impressive. What he managed to achieve with what was clearly very, very little money, the visual poetry, the intensity of The Burial of Kojo, 
was excellent. And I actually gave Blitz Buzzawar an honourable mention as my best director in 2019, I think it was, maybe 2018. But whenever it came out, I gave Blitz Buzzawar an honourable mention as my best director of the year. I thought it was that impressive. So after that calling card, Ava DuVernay brought Blitz Buzzerwall to the United States, or rather brought him back to the United States. I mean, he did go to college in Kent State in Ohio. But Ava DuVernay brought him to the States, and he worked on an Ava DuVernay television show, and then was one of many, many directors that Beyoncé tapped up to be part of her visual album slash concept video slash whatever the hell it was. But Black is King was this project done by Beyonce and a load of African and African-American directors. And Blitz Buzzerwall was one of them. And this was clearly good enough for the producers of this film version of the musical of The Colour Purple, to make Blitz Buzzerwall the director. I mean, among the producers of The Colour Purple is Steven Spielberg and Whoopi Goldberg from the original. I think Quincy Jones is also something to do with this new version as well. But the producers tapped up Blitz Buzzerwall to make this movie musical, and he duly did. And it has now been released cinematically here in the UK, even though I watched it illegally at home, because I'm starting the process of doing a remake reactor video where I will be reacting to both the 1985 version of The Colour Purple and the 2023 version of The Colour Purple. And that's going to be a very long editing process, but that's what I'm going to be working on as soon as I finished recording this audio podcast. So I did watch it illegally at home, but as ever, I do solemnly swear to pay for a ticket to The Colour Purple, so my conscience is clear. But yes, this film is now out cinematically. By Well, actually, I might even get this out before it comes out cinematically, but we'll have to see. Either way, you can see it soon. And it tells the story of Celie, a woman growing up in rural Georgia in the early 20th century. At the beginning of the film, it is 1909 when Celie is 14 and pregnant for the second time by her father and is being played by Felicia Pearl Mpazi. She lives with her domineering father and her younger sister Nettie, played by Hallie Bailey, who was the Little Mermaid in the live-action Little Mermaid last year. But soon enough, an older man, Mr, shows up and says, I would like to marry your very young daughter, Nettie. She's beautiful, she's got that spark, and the father doesn't necessarily want that to happen, but the father, Dion Cole, says, well, you can't have Halle Bailey, but why don't you have Felicia Pearl and Parsi? She's, you know, not as pretty, and she's not as pure as 
my other daughter, but why don't you just take her? So Mr, played by Common Domingo, just takes this 14 or 15-year-old girl to be the stepmother to his three small and rambunctious children. And Common Domingo is not a good or loving husband, beating his new wife frequently, paying her very, very little attention, and clearly enamoured of the glamorous and attractive singer Suge Avery, played by Taraji P. Henson, who eventually, in the course of the film, just moves in with them. I mean, she is a free-spirited singer and goes off on tour frequently, but Taraji P. Henson just lives in their house and partners up with Colin Domingo, which is perfectly okay with Seeley, who by now is played as an adult by Fantasia Barino. But Fantasia Barino is enamoured herself of Taraji P. Henson, but just sits in the corner and doesn't do anything, doesn't complain about her very tragic lot in life. But eventually, her stepson, I guess you call him, grows up to be Corey Hawkins, and one day Corey Hawkins brings back his pregnant girlfriend to the household, played by Danielle Brooks. And Danielle Brooks takes no shit from anybody, including Mr. played by Colm Domingo, which obviously makes her very unpopular. And eventually this fractious relationship between Danielle Brooks and Corey Hawkins breaks up. She goes off elsewhere. And Corey Hawkins, without a real goal in life, decides to turn their little house that he lived in with Danielle Brooks into a juke joint. A juke joint which eventually is rather popular, particularly when the talented and famous or locally famous singer Taraji P. Hansen appearing there regularly. So this juke joint is out in the swamp and Fantasia Barino and Common Domingo are up in the house and everybody's miserable, particularly because Fantasia Barino's sister has never contacted her, despite the fact she promised to do so. But as an audience, we can see that Common Domingo is very, very carefully making sure that he intercepts all the mail. So maybe, just maybe, Nettie is still out there, and Celie does have a sister who loves her out there. And will they be reunited in an emotional overload towards the end of the film? What do you think? And yeah, I mean, I, I guess if you know the the story of the Color Purple, then it is the story of the Color Purple, just with songs in it. I mean, obviously, the Duke Joint provides a, a venue for singing and there is a pretty show-stopping number sung by Taraji P. Hansen, Push the Button. But the other really memorable song in this film is sung by Danielle Brooks, and I'll be getting back to that in a minute. But, yeah, I'm really not sure how to react to this, because I've said on this podcast and in other media that I'm really not a fan of this kind of poverty porn or misery porn. And that's a little bit what I think The Colour Purple is. 
it's about this young woman suffering and suffering and suffering and suffering. And yes, eventually there's some reclamation of her life. There is some self-determination. But that's pretty late in the day. And most of the book, well, I haven't actually read the book, but I'm assuming most of the book and most of the 1985 film is just the suffering. Is just Whoopi Goldberg slash Fantasia Barino suffering. And Whoopi Goldberg actually makes a cameo in this film as the midwife for the very, very young girl giving birth, which was cool to see her. But yeah, it, it's it's suffering. And I actually think that this 2023 version is better than the 1985 version. I mean, there's some details done and they emphasise certain things much, much better than the 1985 version. So as a film, I think I actually prefer the 2023 version, even though the songs are, on the whole, not very memorable. With the exception of those two I mentioned, I mean, Hell No, I think, is the standout song sung by Danielle Brooks. Then you have the very, very sultry Push the Button sung by Taraji P. Henson. But it's just the suffering with extra songs. And, I mean, this is a reasonably big production, even though Taraji P. Henson did make very, very public comments about what she considered unsafe working practices because the budget was not high enough for this film. You know, asking the actors themselves to drive through rural Georgia in order to get to the sets, which Taraji Penson thought was not good enough and, you know, having to share changing rooms was not good enough and all that kind of stuff. But, I mean, that seems to have been brushed over since. But, I mean, this is a a Hollywood-type production and was clearly angling to get into the Oscars. But judging by the gold derby lists of Oscar potential, whatever limited Oscar buzz the Colour Purple had has very, very much faded into the background. And... As things stand before the actual Oscar ceremony, before the announcement of the nominees is made, the only Oscar nomination, above-the-line Oscar nomination, that The Colour Purple is predicted to get is Danielle Brooks for Best Supporting Actress. And this is, I think, a demonstration, an example of a type of Oscar nomination which occasionally happens. Basically, if you sing the most prominent song or the torch song in a movie musical, you are going to win Best Supporting Actress. It worked for Catherine Zeta-Jones in Chicago. It worked for Jennifer Hudson in Dreamgirls. It worked for Anne Hathaway in Les Miserables. Hell, it's worked twice in West Side Story, with both Rita Moreno and Ariana DeBose. Sing the Torch song and or the most prominent song, and you get an Oscar for Best Supporting Actress. Now, I don't think that... 
Danielle Brooks is going to win Best Supporting Actress because I think that's probably going to be Dave and Joy Randolph, who I talked about a little earlier. But I think she's going to get nominated. And now I've actually seen her performance. I can kind of see it. I think there are things in that role which lend themselves to being Oscar-nominated, If even if you leave apart the singing side of things, the actual character that Danielle Brooks is playing is the kind of character which gets you Oscar-nominated. Indeed, Oprah Winfrey got an Oscar nomination in 1986 for playing that same role. So, it is a notable role, apart from the singing, and she does sing what I consider the strongest song in the film, this song, Hell No. So yeah, that that's a, a recipe for getting an Oscar nomination. And personally speaking, I, I don't think I would give her a win. I mean, as I said a little earlier, my choices are going to be Sandra Hula for The Zone of Interest and Penelope Cruz for Ferrari, but I don't think either of those, or certainly not both of them, are getting Oscar nominated for Best Supporting Actress. So we'll have to see that. But yeah, it, it's it's a very, very strong performance and some very, very strong singing. I mean, my God, she's got a voice. But that's not necessarily what you take out of this film. I think Fantasia Brino in the lead is also very, very good. And Coleman Domingo has some buzz around getting a Best Supporting Actor nomination for this, as well as the Best Leading Actor performance he's almost certainly going to get for Rustin. But, yeah, (sighs) with the caveat that I am not the biggest fan of musical theatre and, by extension, musical movies, this just didn't wow me as much as I was hoping. I mean, yes, it's good, but it is a lot of misery porn and a lot of songs, most of which aren't really that good, or certainly not good enough to break out of the pigeonhole i've put it in of just a musical so yeah it's big it's bold it's glamorous there's one white character who has a speaking role i believe i think yeah i think that might be it i think there's one white speaking role in this entire film which is cool But it is about the misery and the poverty of black America. So, yeah, we'll have to see. I think Daniel Brooks is going to get an Oscar nomination. I think nothing else from this film. I don't even think original song is much of a chance. Even though the the two songs they submitted to the Oscars are pretty good. I mean, obviously there's one over the end credits, which is the usual pattern for best original song at the Oscars. And that's sung by Fantasia Barino. But they also submitted a duet earlier in the film from Felicia Perlamparzi and Halle Bailey, which is actually pretty cool, but I don't think it's actually going to get a nomination. We'll have to see. But yeah, this is a big, glossy musical, and that's probably what you sign up for if you're going into a film like this, but it it didn't wow me. It didn't speak to me as much as it's probably going to speak to other people. So, yeah, I am not the target market for this film. I probably wouldn't have seen it if it didn't have that Oscar buzz surrounding it. 
and I didn't want to do that comparison video between the original 85 version and this 2023 version and look out for that in the next week or so. I mean, it's going to take a hell of a lot of editing, but I'm going to be working on that. So, yeah. Didn't end up wowing me. And for me, the colour purple available in cinemas now or very soon is for me a pretty solid meh. Netflix reviews. Maestro is the latest film written and directed and starring Bradley Cooper, who over recent years seems to be making a concerted effort to get himself an Oscar, and interestingly has an equal number of Oscar nominations for producing as he does for acting. He has been nominated for an Oscar for acting in The Silver Linings Playbook, American Hustle, American Sniper, and A Star is Born. And he's been nominated as a producer of American Sniper, A Star is Born, Joker, and Nightmare Alley. Which is interesting. And he's also been Oscar nominated as a co-writer of that version of A Star Is Born. And this latest film is a biopic of Leonard Bernstein and is co-written with Oscar winner Josh Singer, who got an Oscar for co-writing Spotlight, but back in the day wrote loads of episodes of The West Wing and has also worked with some pretty prominent feature film directors in writing films like The Fifth Estate, The Post, and First Man, and now Maestro. And this story essentially tells the story of Leonard Bernstein in two major sections of his life. The first section is in black and white, and is mostly in the 1930s as he is meeting and falling in love with his eventual wife Felicia Montalegre Cohen as played by Carrie Mulligan and becoming one of the first great American conductors of classical music as well as more populist things like A Young Person's Guide to the Orchestra Actually, that was Britain, wasn't it? But he did those television specials introducing young people to the orchestra, which was such a pivotal part of last year's Oscar contender, Tar. But he did that. He also wrote the music for West Side Story and wrote a ballet which was eventually turned into On the Town. So he straddled the line between populism and elitism all the time living with and marrying this theatre actress, Felicia Montalegre, having three children with her, but also periodically sleeping with men, which was more or less a secret, although there were rumours. And then later in the film, the second half of the film is in colour, and is mostly set during the 1970s, where... The strain in this marriage with Bradley Cooper's repeated infidelities with man 
and more and more open infidelities with man start fracturing the relationship between Leonard Bernstein and Felicia Montalegre and start causing issues with their children, the adults or the more grown-up versions of the children being played by Maya Hawke and Sam Nivola, which is pretty cool. And also in the cast, we have Sarah Silverman as Leonard Bernstein's sister, and Matt Bomer and Gideon Glick as the two men he most frequently had relationships with during the course of his marriage. But the old adage goes, you don't know what you've got till it's gone, or nearly gone, and when Kerry Mulligan receives an unfortunate medical diagnosis, Bradley Cooper spends as much time as he can supporting and caring for his wife alongside his teenage young adult children. And, yeah, this is clearly Oscar fodder. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. In fact, I think this film, Maestro, is very, very good Oscar fodder. I think the two central performances from both Bradley Cooper and Kerry Mulligan are outstanding. I expect both of them to get nominated at the Oscars in a couple of days, at time of recording. And I think Bradley Cooper has got a decent chance of actually winning. It seems to be a three-horse race. I mean, the two frontrunners seem to be, at the moment, Killian Murphy for Oppenheimer and Paul Giamatti for The Holdovers, which I've talked about earlier in this episode. But Bradley Cooper seems to be a very, very close third. And of the three, I might actually take Cooper. I think he might actually be my choice when it comes to doing my Oscar preview shows. So, yeah, Bradley Cooper is excellent. Kerry Mulligan is excellent. And Bradley Cooper as director, I also think, is excellent. I mean, I I think he's got a, a reasonable shot at deserving a Best Director nomination as well although that's a a much harder field to get involved with. But, yeah, I mean, some of the stylistic choices in this film are really, really interesting and very prominent. I mean, firstly, you know, the first half of the film is in black and white, the second half is in colour, but there's other flourishes as well. Like, there are certain moments where a kind of dream logic reality starts becoming part of the story. Like, they're having a conversation in a garden where you know a, an older, more prominent person in the musical world is basically telling a young Leonard Bernstein, "You need to focus entirely on conducting. You know, abandon all this silly Broadway stuff. Focus entirely on conducting, and you will become the first great American conductor." And you also need to change your name. You need to anglicise your name. I mean, nobody named Bernstein is going to be given his own orchestra. Change your name to Burns. And, you know, Bradley Cooper is uncomfortable with this. So, seeing this, Kerry Mulligan grabs his hand and runs away from this garden party. And suddenly they're in a theatre. And suddenly they're sitting down and watching 
this ballet that he wrote the music for Jerome Robbins for, which eventually got turned into the musical On the Town. And that sequence is very dreamlike. I mean, going from the garden straight into a, a, a theatre and into this performance. But there's also some very, very strong homoerotic overtones for these you know, lithe male dancers being the object of attention from Bradley Cooper and, you know, Kerry Mulligan noticing this. But, yeah, there are moments of dream logic like that and moments that show you the passing of time, the, the passing of the development of the relationship between these two people. Uh, the philosophy basically being, you know, right from the start, Carrie Mulligan is kind of aware of what's going on. And it seems to be, although it's never outright stated, and very, very little in this one is actually outright stated. But the implication is, I don't particularly care what you do, just don't do it publicly. And, and that's kind of the, the arrangement that they have. But as Bradley Cooper gets older, he gets a little less careful and, you know, things crack, things fracture. And towards the end of the film, Kerry Mulligan has a line, something along the lines of, I thought I could survive on what he was able to give me. You know, she went in with her eyes open, but, you know, didn't realise how hard it would be. And I think that's kind of the the attitude that we have throughout the course of this film. And there's fascinating little techniques, which you know, I actually think is very good writing. I think the script by Bradley Cooper and Josh Singer is actually excellent. Like, the first time they meet the party at somebody's house, it might even be Sarah Silverman, you know, Leonard Bernstein's sister's house, and Felicia Montalegre gets invited. And towards the end of the night, they're kind of testing each other. It's like a memory game. You know, I've given you all this biographical information, you parrot it back to me. So it's a little cute thing that you might do when you first met somebody. You know, I've told you everything about me. Do you remember everything about me? But it also serves as a, an exposition dump for us as an audience. But it's cute. And then they immediately go to an empty theatre where Felicia Montalegre is, is trying to to become an actress and they start running lines together a very romantic scene i mean it just so happens that the scene that carrie mulligan wants to rehearse is a very romantic scene with this handsome eligible man she's just met so there's cute moments like that i mean there's also a couple of pretty obvious moments we like towards the end of the film as a signpost of what era we're in i mean a signpost that we scrolled forward quite a significant amount of time into the 80s you hear a car pulling up and on the car stereo it's the end of the world as we know it by rem is playing and you know basically the only two words that you can clearly hear in that song are leonard bernstein so (laughs) showing the cultural impact that leonard bernstein had as well as showing us that it's now the 1980s which is Clever, if maybe a little blunt, but I mean, there's lots of little moments like that which make me think you know, the technique of this film is excellent as well as the acting. I mean, but primarily, this is an acting showcase. It is Bradley Cooper and Kerry Mulligan acting their hearts out, 
and doing it really, really well. I mean, both of them are really, really good, quite honestly. I honestly do not think I've ever seen Bradley Cooper better than this. I mean, Kerry Mulligan has got such a high bar to cross. I mean, but it's one of her better performances. I, I don't, off the top of my head, I think Promising Young Woman would be my favourite Kerry Mulligan performance. But yeah, it, she is certainly fantastic in this. I mean, it, it's a really, really good acting showcase for both of them. And a really impressive film. Giving us all the biographical information we need, as well as giving us all the tension uh, and the drama and the building resentment between these two people. And I, I think one of the things which Bradley Cooper and Josh Singer, as writers, are trying to do here is dispel the myth of the great man. I think there has been a, a tendency in cinematic history to portray the great man as you know this flawless bastion of morality and decency and greatness and everybody should bow down before them and put them up on a pedestal i mean all too often throughout cinematic history that has been the case but maestro is not that this is very much a warts and all very much a feat of clay kind of approach this is, to some degree, Bradley Cooper portraying Leonard Bernstein, playing out the great man narrative, and failing, showing that there are consequences for that. There is fallout from that. You might approach life as if you are a great man, but you leave wreckage in your wake. Actually, thinking about it, it is very similar to last year's Tar. Or actually, it was the beginning of 2023. So, actually, in the UK, Tar and Maestro came out in the same calendar year, which I think is a very, very interesting double feature. But, yeah, I, I think both of them are similar in, in trying to have you know the great man slash great woman narrative brought down, saying that I can get away with anything because I am the genius, but you can't. And then it all comes crashing down around you and you realise what you are, who you are, and you try your best to make amends, which is kind of what Leonard Bernstein did. And yeah, I mean, this is a, a fascinating way of going about it. I mean, I, I think not only is the acting of both Carrie Mulligan and Bradley Cooper excellent, I think their interactions are also excellent. Many, many times they're talking over each other and you know, not quite letting each other finish their sentences. I mean, initially in that comfortable way, you know, we are deeply in love, it doesn't matter if we talk over each other. And then towards the end, it's, you know, I need to say my bit and I don't care if you haven't quite finished. So I mean, they're talking over each other consistently throughout the course of the film and it, its meaning slightly changes over the course of the film. I find it really, really fascinating that the score for this film is completely made up of Leonard Bernstein's music, which makes a lot of sense, but it is occasionally a little bit overbearing. I think that kind of score used in that kind of way is a little bit old-fashioned. I don't think we quite do scores like that anymore. 
but using Anna Bernstein's music is you know, a great thing. I mean, like there's a, a moment of, of great tension between Kerry Mulligan and Bradley Cooper, where essentially Bradley Cooper has invited his boyfriend Glidian Glick over to their house for the weekend. And the score is the opening dance sequence from West Side Story, which I thought was appropriate. So we just got that tension and that, that stabbing, angry kind of approach. Uh, the first time we actually see Kerry Mulligan, she's giving it a grand, swelling fanfare. I mean, I don't recognise that particular piece of music, but it was clearly, oh, that must be Leonard Bernstein, because, you know, the first time we see Kerry Mulligan, she's given this huge, grand entrance in the score. So, yeah, I mean, there's really, really interesting techniques used throughout the course of this. I mean, uh, as a writer, director, and actor, I think Bradley Cooper knocks it out of the park in this one. I think this is a really, really good film. Uh, and, yeah, I think it definitely is going to deserve the Best Picture nomination it's almost certainly going to get. Bradley Cooper and Kerry Mulligan, I think, are shoo-ins for Best Actor and Actress. I think Bradley Cooper might get into Best Director as well. And I hope that he and Josh Singer get into Best uh, Original Screenplay, I think it would be, for this. I don't think this is based on a book. So I think this would be an original screenplay, and I hope it it gets that nomination as well. It's already got a a BAFTA nomination for Best Screenplay, which is good. So, yeah. All around, I think this is a really, really excellent film. Primarily, it's an acting showcase, but it's none the worse for that. And for me, Maestro, available on Netflix, is a yay. New Releases so next week's releases are actually rather a lot. <laughs> we are coming to the end of the true awards season here in the UK, and we have some other more general films starting to sneak back into the schedules. I think there's going to be five films reviewed in the next cinematic episode which is a lot. In the Oscar Beatty end of things, we have two films which have actually already seen both of them, and now post-Oscar nomination announcement day, I can say that both The Zone of Interest and American Fiction got a boatload of Oscar nominations. Probably more than they were expecting, at least at the beginning of the Oscar season, but yes. The Zone of Interest is finally out this week, which I saw at the London Film Festival. It is a pretty harrowing and pretty disturbing and also very, very experimental film directed by Jonathan Glazer about the family of the Commandant of Auschwitz. And basically the film is us following this family christian friedel sandra Hüller, who should have got a best supporting actress nomination on top of the best actress nomination she actually got for anatomy of a fall but it's sandra Hüller and christian friedel and their children living their quiet little life in this nice cottage with a beautiful garden but on one end of the garden is a gigantic gray wall and over that wall is Auschwitz. 
and we can hear what is going on in Auschwitz, but basically nothing is being done about it. I mean, it is an extraordinary film. It's going to win Best International Feature. I think that's the first time that Britain's going to win uh, Best International Feature for quite some time. I don't think, if, in fact, they ever have. I'm going to have to look that up. But anyway, The Zone of Interest is very, very powerful. It's won many awards. It's been nominated for Best Picture as well as Best International Feature, as has American Fiction. And yes, if you can cope with it, The Zone of Interest is excellent, and it is out cinematically this week as is American Fiction, which I've seen already in a preview screening. And that too is excellent. Telling the story of a novelist played by Jeffrey Wright, who is sick and tired of nobody wanting to buy his books, not the public nor the publishers, since he is an academic who tends to use old Greek plays and Greek mythology as the basis for his books. And apparently that's not working. I mean, <laughs> despite the fact that, you know, Spike Lee turns Lysistrata into Chirac a few years back. But Jeffrey Wright isn't getting anywhere. And frustrated and annoyed by his lack of opportunities because what people want is black fiction, despite the fact he is black, he writes this really offensive, almost parody of a black novel with slang and guns and drugs and murder and you know the gritty urban street life, which he's just making up from whole cloth. But this joke goes too far when somebody actually buys this book for an awful lot of money. And suddenly this mild-mannered, though somewhat angry academic has to publicize this book as a wanted murderer stag r lee and yeah the absurdities of the black experience and commodifying the black experience is brought to bear in american fiction and it's really really good and yes that will be a full review in the next episode as well In the more generalised releases, we have one of those special limited anime releases this week. This one doesn't look like it's going to be hugely popular, but this was a film which was actually on the 33-film-long eligible list for animated feature at the Oscars this year, so I do want to check it out, even though it honestly doesn't sound very appealing. But it's called Blue Giant and is about a young man who is obsessed with jazz and wants to become the best jazz musician he possibly can. So it's giving a little bit vibes of Whiplash, or at least the drive and the determination of Whiplash without the toxic presence of a J.K. Simmons type figure. But yes, following this jazz saxophonist who wants to form a group and the troubles within the group and trying to be you know the best jazz musicians they possibly can and apparently the soundtrack has been done by a grammy award-winning japanese jazz musician so cool i guess but yeah blue giant is being given a limited cinematic release this week and i do want to check it out 
as I do another animated feature which was on the eligible features list this year, and that is Illumination Studios' new film, Migration. Which looks like another variation, yet another variation, on that animation trope of a father who is having to learn to let go. A duck, I think voiced by Kamel Nanjiani, who is very, very concerned, very paranoid about migrating, and eventually gets forced by his family to migrate and actually experience the world. And they somehow end up in New York City. And these inexperienced and paranoid country ducks end up in New York. So, yeah, sounds like a pretty typical animated feature. It did not get nominated for the Oscar and nobody expected it to. But, yeah, let's see what migration is. And the last cinematic film I want to talk about is Argyle, which is Matthew Vaughan's new film. Now, I have mixed feelings on Matthew Vaughan. I mean, when he first came out as an adjunct to the whole Guy Ritchie type of film, you know, producing things like Lock, Stock and Two Smoking Barrels and eventually directing his own versions of those i think he directed rock and roller didn't he or you know along those lines but then he moved into more genre things i mean directing stardust which was cool and directing kick-ass which when i first saw it i absolutely loved but the further away we get from it the further i think that is a really irresponsible and, and somewhat damaging film particularly since I saw the next year the film Special, directed by James Gunn, who went on to do Guardians of the Galaxy, which had a pretty similar premise and did it much, much better. So I've soured a little on Kick-Ass. And then when he did Kingsman, I kind of liked the first one, but I definitely soured on the second one. So now we have another film which is somewhat in that type of spy genre in Argyle which stars Bryce Dallas Howard as a mild-mannered and introverted spy novelist who suddenly finds herself embroiled in real-life spy shenanigans because, for some reason, the novels she has writing have started to come true. So now everybody in the spy world wants to know what the hell's going to happen next, since, for some reason, somehow, she has become a fortune teller of what's going to happen in the spy world. So Sam Rockwell is trying to protect her, and there's various other people, like Brian Cranston and Samuel L. Jackson, involved as well, and the fictional spy she's been writing has been played by Henry Cavon. He's interacting with people like Sophia Batella, Dua Lipa, which is interesting, Ariana DeBose and John Cena. So, yeah, sounds like it might be fun. And even though I I have mixed feelings about Matthew Vaughan at this current point in history, I think that is going to be fun. So I do want to check out Argyle in the cinema this week as well. As far as the streaming things go, I still haven't fully got the Netflix lists published. The sites I depend on is a little late this month but i do know that there are a couple of netflix films i want to check out 
yet another animated feature, Orion and the Dark, is a new DreamWorks film, which has ended up on Netflix. I believe it's based on a children's book, but it is about a very scared, very paranoid young boy who starts interacting with a creature which is the manifestation of dark or something along those lines and he learns to put his fears aside and live uh, a life that is fuller than the fear infused one he is currently living so yeah that sounds like uh, an a fun film and i do want to check that out might even add that into make that yet another film which is added onto the animation special I'm planning. And there's also a Belgian film called Will, which sounds rather interesting. It's about a couple of police officers in Antwerp during the Second World War. And what happens to the Belgian police when the Nazis are occupying your country? And that sounds rather cool. So yes, I do want to add Will to the list. Although I don't think that's going to be a very high priority. There's also yet another film which I might add on to that animation special because an animated feature I've been seeing dotted about here and there, you know, seeing stills from, seeing publicity from. I mean, it premiered at the Anon C Animation Festival in 2022, but it's taken this long to get a UK release, and it's actually being released onto movie.com, so I can actually watch it for free which means I might actually do so. It's called No Dogs or Italians Allowed and is a biographical story from a French animator about his grandfather and his determination to get a better life. So he crossed the Alps from Italy to France, I believe in the mid-19th century, And this is the story of the hardships he found there. And yet, here we are three generations later and somebody's making a film about it. So yeah, that does look cool. It's done all in claymation, which is very, very cool and something you really don't see very much anymore because it is so labour-intensive. But yes, No Dogs or Italians Allowed has been added to movie.com, so I do want to check that out. We also have on Amazon Prime TV a film I'm adding to the list, but I'm not entirely sure I'll ever get to it. It's called The Underdogs, with two Gs, and it stars Snoop Dogg as a disgraced NFL player who, in order to build up his public image back up, agrees to coach a peewee football team. You know, kids are about 10, 11, 12 years old, and hijinks ensue, and you know, Snoop Dogg has to learn a valuable lesson about growing up and about family and all that kind of stuff. I mean, I'm mildly interested in that, and I do know for a fact that Snoop Dogg is very, very into American football. He is, in real life, a coach of kids in the Long Beach area where he grew up. And a couple of the kids he coached when they were kids are now in the NFL. So, yeah, he he clearly wanted to make a film something along those lines. But it looks like a pretty broad, pretty puerile comedy. 
But I'm going to keep the underdogs with two Gs on the list and see what happens. And finally, I do want to talk about the documentary feature Beyond Utopia, which is getting a streaming release this week. Now, this was supposed to be one of the really, really big contenders at the Oscars. It was talked about that it was a head-to-head race between this film, Beyond Utopia, the Netflix documentary, American Symphony, and the Ukrainian war documentary, 20 Days in Mariupol. I mean, one of those three was going to win. And yet Beyond Utopia didn't even get nominated, and neither did American Symphony. So basically, I think 20 Days of Mary Potter is going to win that category. But yeah, Beyond Utopia did not get nominated, and yet it is pretty high profile and is getting a race. And since it's on the 15 film long list, I do want to check it out before my Oscar previews. So yes, Beyond Utopia is telling the story of a South Korean Christian pastor who helps people escape from North Korea and sets them up in their new lives in the South and all that kind of stuff. I mean, basically, the migration, the escape of people from North Korea to South Korea and the people who assist them, the brave people who assist them. So, yeah, that sounds like it might be really, really fascinating. And Everybody thought it was going to be an Oscar contender, but it did not get nominated. So yes, I do want to check out Beyond Utopia, the documentary, getting a streaming release this week. But while I am working on that increasingly lengthy animation special, which I keep adding films to, the next cinematic episode I will be releasing will be a very busy one, reviewing... The Zone of Interest, American Fiction, Blue Giant, Migration, and Argyle. The To Watch List. So it started out that the next streaming episode I was planning to do would deal with the five animated features which had been released onto Netflix and were on the eligible features list for the Animated Feature Oscar. Those films being Chicken Run, Dawn of the Nugget, Leo, Miraculous, Ladybug and Cat and Wild the Movie, The Monkey King and The Magician's Elephant. And I have started on that journey. I've already watched Chicken Run and Leo, both of which are pretty good. But... Things keep on potentially being added to the list. Not least of which, Orion and the Dark, which is also getting a Netflix release this week, and also No Dogs or Italians Allowed, which is being released onto Mubi this week. Thinking about it, I may as well also add Blue Giant onto that list, because even though it's a cinematic release, it's a limited cinematic release, so how useful it's going to be, I'm not sure. So I might add that in. And I also might add in Wish, because just before I started recording today, I discovered that Wish has been released onto home media. So I now have the opportunity to do my planned reaction video to it. 
alongside the colour purple one I'm already working on. So suddenly my life is getting very, very busy. I also need to start doing some more charmed TV reactions soon as well. Because I'm running out of ones I've got saved up. So yes. Very, very lengthy animation special probably coming soon. With all those animated features on it, or as many as I can fit into. So yeah, I, I think that's the next thing on the list is an animation special for the streaming episodes. And now I know the Oscar nominations. I don't think there's anything I actually need to catch up on that got nominated for the Oscars. So yeah, that's been pushed to the back a little bit. So yes, a very lengthy animation special is probably coming pretty soon as well. The Ace. As you would expect in this somewhat Oscar Beatty episode, there are three yays I want to hand out. The first is to The Holdovers, which is an excellent character study, which did not necessarily go in the ways I expected. I mean, it was a portrait of a much more self aware and comfortable person than I was anticipating, and Paul Giamatti plays it excellently. I think he deserved the Oscar nomination he got, as did Divine Joy Randolph. I honestly don't think Divine Joy Randolph deserves to win the Oscar, but she certainly deserves the nomination. And yeah, Dominic Sessa is a name to look out for in what is essentially his very first acting role. So the Holdovers is excellent, got lots of themes of privilege and propriety and painful family dynamics. So yeah, The Holdovers, I think, is excellent, and it is a yay. As is All of Us Strangers, which really is a fantastic film. I mean, I saw that film at the touring programme of the London Film Festival and I was just blown away by it. I think my attitude to it has cooled a little bit in the month or two since I've seen it. I particularly, the more I think about it, the more the end of All of Us Strangers bothers me. But the actual story we get and the performances are excellent. I mean, Andrew Scott, I honestly think, should have been a Best Actor nominee. Well, I, I say that, I haven't actually done the maths, but he's certainly one of the strong contenders. And his performance, particularly interacting with his parents, Claire Foy and Jamie Bell, are fantastic. I mean, the idea of exploring the homosexual experience from the AIDS-ridden panic of the 80s through to today, where it's pretty normalised, you know, you could get married and all that kind of stuff. I think a stock take of where queer rights are is one of the things which this film does, and it does really, really well. So yes, All of Us Strangers, I think, is excellent, excellently acted, some really fascinating themes, and for me, it is also a yay. As is Maestro, and it surprises me how positive a reaction I did have to Maestro, because 
clearly it is an acting showcase for Bradley Cooper and to a certain degree Carrie Mulligan as well. But showing the entirety of this life through the prism of the relationship between Leonard Bernstein and his wife and the frequent affairs with mostly men and a few women that Leonard Bernstein had throughout his life as well. The great man narrative. But subverting that and showing all the flaws, showing all the issues, showing the selfishness of this man. Everything is set up exactly how I want it, and damn the rest of you, is to some degree what's going on here. But showing the artistry, showing the struggles, doing it in two time periods, you know, having the black and white section and then the colour section, you know, the two different stages of Bernstein's life and the relationship's life, it's really, really fascinating. I think all around the script is excellent, deserved its nomination. Bradley Cooper and Kerry Mulligan are excellent. And yeah... It is a biopic and has a lot of those biopic tropes, but I think it's a really, really good example, and I did like it a surprising amount. It was one of those films that I ticked off due to duty, but I ended up really liking Maestro, and for me, it is also a yay. So now the... Oscar nominations have been announced. I can say confidently that The Holdovers did well. It did get a Best Picture nomination. Paul Giamatti for Best Actor. Dave Joy Randolph for Best Supporting Actress. And David Hemmingson for Best Original Screenplay. It did not get a Best Director nomination for Alexander Payne. But since Greta Gerwig didn't get one either, that's... The really, really big shock from the Oscar nominations for me is that neither Greta Gerwig nor Margot Robbie got Oscar nominations for Barbie. That, yeah, is really strange. Unfortunately, all of us strangers did not get any nominations, but I didn't really expect it to. The Colour Purple only got that one for Danielle Brooks in Best Supporting Actress. And Maestro also did pretty well. I mean, it's going to win Best Makeup and Hairstyling because the Academy loves prosthetics. But Maestro also got a Best Picture nomination, a Best Actor for Bradley Cooper, Best Actress for Carrie Mulligan, and a Best Original Screenplay for Bradley Cooper and Josh Singer. And again, Bradley Cooper didn't get a Best Director nomination either. But that's still a very, very impressive haul for Maestro. And indeed the holdovers. So yes, lots of Oscar nominations, which I can now actively talk about since we are past the nominations announcement. So yes, I am now going to be working on lots and lots of videos because I've already recorded and I need to edit my Colour Purple remake reactor doing both the 1985 and the 2023 versions. I've now got to do my Wish reaction video to the Disney animated film. And I can already start working on most of my Oscar preview videos as well, since I've basically watched everything that I need to watch. With the possible exception of Ava DuVernay's Origin, 
And I've actually still got a few documentaries and international features to tick off the list and to do some animated features. So in the main categories, I've basically got everything sorted. In the above the line categories where I actually give my previews and predictions, I've only got two documentaries to tick off the list and three international features. Other than that, I've seen everything. So at a minimum, I can give my thoughts on what actually got nominated in almost all the categories. So yes, I need to start working on that as well. But in this audio side of things, I've got that cinematic episode reviewing the zone of interest, American fiction, migration and Argyle. I think I'm going to shove off the review of Blue Giant, the anime film, onto my animation special. So yeah, that's got a lot of films suddenly added to it. But yeah, look out for that cinematic episode and that animation review special on this audio feed, and do check out my YouTube channel for all those reaction videos, including the Oscar nomination reaction video, which I published yesterday and yeah lots and lots of stuff this is an incredibly busy time of year but this is what happens when you add on all these extra projects which i tend to do but regardless i think that's all i've got for this particular episode and all that remains for me to say is this has been an episode of the Yay, Nay or Meh podcast. I've been your host, Colin Gaisley, coming to you from Bath in the southwest of England. Email is yaynayormeh at gmail.com and you can find me on YouTube at yaynayormeh. And I will see you next time where I shine a light on cinema, both obvious and obscure. <laughs>